Hey everyone, I know that we can all relate with hanging out in our drawing rooms, having comical arguments about false identity, false illnesses, and fake to deaths. But have you ever done all that while eating a cucumber sandwich? Today's book is The Importance of Being Earnest by Ernest Hemingway. Sorry, Oscar Wilde. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Ersk, and I'm a comic, a father, and a fan of all the Oscars. Wild, Grouch, <laughs> Academy Award. And I'm David Vance. Kellen, I have these two good friends. The first guy eats junk food all the time, and the other guy has a ton of health problems. And my joke with them is that it's a picture of Dorian Gray situation. <laughs> and it always gets great laughs, except from the sick guy. <laughs> All right, as usual, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a great review. Blue Jay Star says, My favorite podcast, excluding none, Kellen, about my favorite thing, books. Now, I do appreciate that, and uh, it makes me sound very desperate. Um, <laughs> not only is this podcast entertaining, but the hosts are extremely smart, and every episode is a chance to learn something. They clearly know what they're talking about and often provide more insight into the topic than the author of the book. Wow, that's nice. Take that, Walter Isaacson and Stephen yeah. King. <laughs> no, but thank you very much, Blue Jay Star. It is funny to me that this reviewer, in trying not to offend you, offended you. <laughs> if you want to see me live, uh, here's a quick rundown. April 19th, Louisville, Kentucky. April 20th to the 22nd, Fort Wayne, Indiana. April 23rd, Appleton, Wisconsin. I think I said April 23rd. I meant 23rd. I didn't make up a new number. April 26th. Tacoma, Washington, 27th to the 29th, Spokane, Washington, Spokane, uh, June 15th, Mill Valley, California, July 7th through 8th, St. Paul, Minnesota, and, what if I, <laughs> and July 9th, Mondovi, Wisconsin. Wow. My new strategy is to mispronounce everything so no one comes. <laughs> This is like you were constipated for a really long time, and then all of a sudden. <laughs> so, The Importance of Being Earnest is the only play that I have read, listened to, watched as a movie, and seen as a live stage production. Wow. The only thing left is to smell the whole thing. But I think it's amazing because it still works even when you just read it as a book, which I think shows yeah. how strong the dialogue is. Like, I haven't read a lot of just straight-up screenplays, but I imagine that A Quiet Place would get tedious because <laughs> I imagine it reads like, and then they walk through a cornfield, and then they go in the house, and then someone knocks over something, and Jim from the office makes wild shushing gestures. <laughs> and then he hams to camera. <laughs> Anyway, I, I find the importance of being earnest, endearing, and witty, and timeless. Yeah. I love that Oscar Wilde uses a style that I compare to Arrested Development, because to me, the characters are more cartoon characters than actual people. Mm -hmm. And also, like Arrested Development, to me, the story comes around full circle in a satisfying way, even though it feels contrived, but it's okay, because it's meant to be that way. It's just a lot of fun. But uh, what did you think, Dave? This was uh, was this 
your first time experiencing it? Yeah, I, I hadn't read it before. I, I really liked this book. I didn't expect to laugh as much as I did at a 120-year-old play. <laughs> and the reason is because of how unfunny I find old stand-up. <laughs> Anytime someone recommends a great stand-up comic from like 40 years ago, I know I'm not going to laugh once. <laughs> so I, I didn't have super high expectations going into this, and I was very pleasantly surprised. Good. Yeah, what I like about it is that there are like legitimate jokes in it. Yeah. Shakespeare has comics. Comedies, but I find that when, when I'm laughing at something Shakespeare says, it's also like, <laughs> I also feel smart by understanding what this even right. means. <laughs> yeah, every Shakespeare joke, you have to look up like four words. <laughs> so it's nice having jokes in our language. <laughs> All right, like always, except last week, check this episode out on our YouTube channel, link in bio. Let us know what you think. Finally, our next two books are Unbroken and Ender's Game. I don't know how we haven't done Ender's Game yet, because it was like a pivotal childhood book for me. It is nice to have a book I love so much that we didn't do when we were terrible at this. <laughs> That's why I'm excited that we haven't done The Hobbit yet either, because I know if it, was, oh, yeah. if it was within our first 20 or 30 episodes, my side of the podcast would have been like, <laughs> okay, so here's what we can learn from The Hobbit and apply to our daily lives. All right, and without further ado, here are three lessons that we took from The Importance of Being Earnest. All right, lesson one. Comedy is about specificity. Kellen, listen to these two jokes. First one is very broad. A man walks into a bar and dies. Okay, now look when I add details. You walk into a bar and die. See how that's better? One of my favorite lines from the play works because it's so specific. This character says, My dear Algie, you talk exactly as if you were a dentist. It is very vulgar to talk like a dentist when one isn't a dentist. It produces a false impression. Now, apparently that's a commentary about don't try to act bougier than you are. But before I knew any of that, it was already really funny to me because the wording is so specific. <laughs> Another example. How you can sit there calmly eating muffins when we are in this horrible trouble, I can't make out. Well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner. The butter would probably get on my cuffs. One should always eat muffins quite calmly. I think a great tip for joke writers is, if you have a joke idea you like and it's not working, can you improve it by making it more specific? Mm. Like the person in the joke, what's their religion? How much do they weigh? No. <laughs> That's from my favorite book, Joke Writing in the 90s. <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll give you a real example from The Office. So I, I took a joke from Angela, and I took four words out. I'm going to read it and then put the words back in. So Angela is so tiny and uptight that she has to wear kids' clothes. And she says, sometimes the clothes at Gap are just too flashy, so I'm forced to go to the store and order clothes for large dolls. <laughs> so, okay, funny idea. Now I'm adding the four words back in. Sometimes the clothes at Gap Kids are just too flashy, so I'm forced to go to the American Girl store and order clothes for large colonial dolls. <laughs> yeah. That specificity just makes it so much funnier. Colonial doll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Kellen, I want to know, do you have an example where one of your stand-up jokes became funnier when you made it more specific? One change that did come up recently was... It's in this story. I don't tell a lot of real life stories in my act, but it's a real thing that when I'm driving late at night by myself, sometimes the thought will hit me that I'll think that someone else is in the car with me. 
<laughs> and I mentioned in the joke that it's it's often triggered after I've been like singing along with a song. <laughs> it's not even so much that I'm like afraid of getting carjacked. I'm more just like embarrassed that he didn't like it. And so the joke is about a, a, a real story that happened to me. Uh, I heard something back there. So then I really thought someone was back there. And then the the reveal is that I had accidentally flipped the back windshield wiper on <laughs> and it made this little movement sound. <laughs> and so when that reveal happens, that, that part of the joke is, I said, apparently when I was flipping on my brights earlier, I accidentally scrolled that little control and created my worst enemy. <laughs> and the, the specific joke that came to my mind while I was telling it last week, I changed it on the spot to... I accidentally scrolled that little control and created Ted Bundy. <laughs> and that specific reference yeah. just had such more of an explosive response from the audience. That it's now yeah. what I'm going to use in that bit. It's so like visual and immediate and visceral. <laughs> and and maybe it's just that when you go specific, people can imagine it so much better. Yeah. Especially if someone the in my audience had been killed by Ted Bundy. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone has a strong opinion on Bundy, whether you are for or against. <laughs> oh, man, I want to make it clear. I'm very anti-Ted Bundy. <laughs> and I'm still deciding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson two. Absolutes are funnier, whether they're true or not. So this play is full of absolute statements, which I think makes for a more compelling dialogue, just like how Dave always throws cats at billboards. To me, <laughs> a well-crafted absolute statement that rings true is effective because it's often an idea that the audience member or reader can relate to, but it's maybe said in a new way that no one has phrased it before. Yeah, It's something, again, that I strive for in my act. I'll list a few of my favorites from Ernest, and then at the end I do uh, have a couple of examples from myself, just to end strong, you know? Uh, <laughs> so here are a few from uh, the play. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. <laughs> mm. All women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No man does, and that is his. <laughs> 35 is a very attractive age. London society is full of women of very highest birth who have, of their own free choice, remained 35 for years. <laughs> to be natural is such a difficult pose to keep up. I love that one because it goes back to the conversations that we have had about how hard it is to just be natural. <laughs> The best way to be natural is for someone to tell you to be natural. <laughs> Just walk normally and don't think about your hands. <laughs> a few years ago, my family was part of an Amazon documentary about stand-up comedians. And the first day that this camera crew came over, it's director, producer. There's three or four cameras in my house. There's a lighting crew. There's a boom. And we're all at our dinner table. And the director just points at me and he says, all right, just eat dinner like you normally would. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, well, first of all, normally there aren't 11 people surrounding us. 
But then I legitimately was also like, uh, wait, am I left-handed? Like, it is crazy uh, when you're put in that situation. You're like, how quickly do I move noodles up to my face? <laughs> so, how was your day? How do I usually yell at the kids? <laughs> so, all of these statements being so absolute... It's funny that he basically just took things that are sometimes true and an interesting observation, and he said, I'm going to turn everything up to 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm convinced that's how Nietzsche came up with his quotes. He'd be like, so you know how sometimes you don't get along with your mother-in-law? And he'd sit down and write, every mother-in-law in history <laughs> yeah. has... Every mother-in-law is the mouth of a viper into which the man must... <laughs> it's like, all right, Friedrich. All right, so now the absolute statements that are untrue, I think, are great, too. I've always been a fan of comedy that's done very seriously. It's mm -hmm. Leslie Nielsen in Airplane or the Naked Gun movies. It's John Cleese in most of the Monty Python sketches. And it's all of the characters in this play. I see it as satire of the human condition. Dave, how many times at a dinner table have you heard someone say something with zero to back it up, but with the conviction of the author of Why We Sleep. <laughs> I have been wondering for a while on this podcast, what's the dumbest thing we could get people to believe? And I, w I think I want to try to convince people that there's another Renaissance artist after Leonardo and Michelangelo named Shredder. <laughs> <laughs> We call him Shredder. At the time, he was known as The Shredder. <laughs> Fun fact. So this whole play is played very seriously to me. That's what makes it that much more funny. So here are some of my favorite quotes in, in that genre. Sugar isn't fashionable anymore. Most men don't mention their brother. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? You covered this one in your last point, that one should only eat muffins calmly. Um, I love, it is always painful to part from people whom one has known for a brief space of time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's how I feel every time I run out of an Uber. And then, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as misfortune, but to lose both looks like carelessness. <laughs> So I just, I challenge everyone, the next time you're going to say something, skip the maybe. <laughs> something that I have found about using absolutes, like in jokes, is that it really helps out the algorithm on Facebook and Instagram reels. Oh, sure. <laughs> because half of the population of the world <laughs> finds a way to argue with you, because I have mentioned... <laughs> That penguins don't have knees. It is unreal the thousands of people who have let me know that they actually do. And then a recent joke that I posted just hit a million views on Instagram because I make the argument that I hate that banana bread is made from just rotten black bananas. And right. I make the claim that if someone made banana bread with fresh bananas, it would be the best tasting food in history. But we'll never know, because for some reason, all of us are totally fine with trash bread. And it is unbelievable how many people um, are just shooting banana bread facts at me. <laughs> Those comments crack me up because they're trying to tell you that 
older bananas are sweeter, like they've really dunked on you. Like they're going to convince you like, oh, now I don't think it's gross. (laughs) The way I like to think about it is that every human wants status. And there are a million different ways for us to try to get it, even just a little bit. And now I'm just endlessly fascinated by the ways we try to get it. Am I going to dunk on this guy by showing him I know more about bananas? (laughs) Heck yes, I am. I'm the banana king. So anyway, my takeaway with all of this is always speak in absolutes or one day you'll die at the circus. (laughs) I was trying to find a connection that I was like, oh, no, he's just being an absolutist. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson three. Our love stories are too short. One of the characters, Algernon, gives a speech about love, and he's very cynical You know that friend you have who makes you laugh a lot, but then after they leave, you're like, why am I so unhappy? (laughs) So Algernon's that guy. But his, his speech also matches the way most of our media tells love stories. He says, I really don't see anything romantic in proposing. It is very romantic to be in love, but there is nothing romantic about a definite proposal. Why one may be accepted, then the excitement is all over. So obviously he's being a cynic, but look at our movies How many love stories keep going after they get together? (laughs) We don't want to know about 40-year marriages. We want to know about, like, one year before that. (laughs) The philosopher Alain de Botton has a whole book about this called The Course of Love. He says, We seem to know far too much about how love starts and recklessly little about how it might continue. (laughs) So Algernon goes, The very essence of romance is uncertainty. If ever I get married, I'll certainly try to forget the fact. (laughs) And then he says, divorces are made in heaven. (laughs) That fact that all our movies, you know, most love stories only cover getting together, not staying together. Mm -hmm. It'd be like if you want to learn how to be a piano player, but every movie stops right when the person commits to piano lessons. (laughs) (laughs) And then even the shows that continue after they get together, like Jim and Pam, the final season, had one marital problem and the fans lost their minds. (laughs) It's a whole show about how office life is kind of miserable, but if you acknowledge marriage isn't perfect, they will shoot you in the face. (laughs) So I I don't know, maybe our love stories should show how to be happy in a marriage, not just leading up to one. Sure. (laughs) And with The Office, you know, there is sort of a consensus that after season three, a lot of interest dips. Like you still love the characters, but once Jim and Pam are together, then the uh, other sort of sexual tensions that they try and build just aren't as convincing like Andy and Aaron. You're just like, ugh, what is he, your dad? (laughs) Like, (laughs) stay away. Right. It's so funny how much we invest in a will they, won't they, when we know it's will they. (laughs) And you also know in a movie, like, if people get together within the first 20 minutes, you're like, oh, great. What bad (laughs) thing is going to befall them? (laughs) I know. That would be a great suspense movie is you have them get together at the beginning, and then you just torture the audience thinking something bad is going to happen, and then it doesn't. (laughs) They're just fine. (laughs) And now they're going on vacation. That was nice. Now they're heading back to work. (laughs) All right, random facts. I wish I could have been there in buttoned-up Victorian society when out comes this play that makes fun of marriage, makes fun of the rich, 
and no one learns from their bad behavior. (laughs) In fact, everyone who behaves badly is immensely rewarded. It's basically a Victorian Seinfeld. And I hope the queen was just frothing at the mouth. So I didn't research this enough to verify it. It might be apocryphal, but I love this story either way. One time when he was going through U.S. Customs, apparently Oscar Wilde said that he had, quote, nothing to declare but my genius. (laughs) (laughs) So at one point, Wilde decided to cut his long hair and to make his hairdresser understand how he wanted his new hairstyle to look, he took him to the Louvre and showed him a Roman statue. <laughs> and it's got to be the first time in history where someone turned to their stylist and was like, um, make me look like this person. <laughs> Is it something everyone just does with their phones now? Yeah. Except for me, because all I could say is like, give me the Vin Diesel. But I just hope that he was upset afterwards and said something like, but my hair doesn't look like marble. (laughs) One time, uh, Oscar Wilde actually paid his older brother to grow a beard so that they wouldn't look as similar to each other. (laughs) (laughs) though it sounds like they were the property brothers (laughs) so this isn't a random fact but a quick apology to everyone who i inadvertently tricked into listening to our episode on the book contagious episode number 90 because last week i brought up that that was the one that you should check out if you wanted more context on the joke that i made about dave's mom being proud of me for mentioning that i was married That whole thing is actually not on that episode, but the following one, number 91, on the book Persepolis. You don't have to listen to the whole episode. It's in like the first 45 seconds or so. And again, I'm sorry. I hope you're still lying. Yeah, yeah. just bring up a different episode every week for our downloads. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're doing a new segment called One Thing You Can Try Today. Here's one. If you're telling a joke, make it a little more specific. All right, this book could also be called A Play. (laughs) Ever since we decided we could do plays on the book pile, my life has gotten so much easier. (laughs) This book could also be called My Whole Life is a Pun. (laughs) All right, this book could also be called Get Women to Marry You by Lying to Them. It's not a joke. It just works. <laughs> this, book, this book could also be called The Importance of Being 18, at least. <laughs> Didn't that bother you just a little bit? I don't know. It did for me. Maybe the age of consent in England at the time was like 14, but it was still just a little off to me that one <laughs> of the love interests is 18. I guess because it was 1895 and we just saw Juliet be 13, I'm like, baby steps. I mean, literally baby steps. (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the importance of being earnest. One, comedy is about specificity. Two, absolutes are funnier whether they're true or not. Three, our love stories are too short. And number four, yes, if you eat muffins while you're agitated, you might get crumbs on your sleeves, so do what I do. Go to brunch shirtless. (laughs) 